Welcome to Sightseeing Japan, the podcast where we explore the land of well-mannered deer. I'm Paul Bresson. And I'm Jason Neeling. How's it going, buddy? It's been one of those days for me, bro. Sorry to hear that. So, I don't know if you noticed, but I was a couple minutes late getting here today. That's okay. I was in the middle of eating a sandwich. I didn't have quite as much time as I had expected after work. Yeah, so it all worked out, but... I know that you're a punctual person, and I appreciate that about you, and I feel like I am a punctual person too, so I hate making people wait when I've like committed to a time. So I'm leaving today, plenty of time, no problem. I can't find my keys. Uh-oh. Like, I almost never like misplace my keys or my wallet. I always know where it is. So I was looking for definitely over five minutes. Wow. I was looking everywhere. I checked all my jacket pockets. I checked the pants I was wearing at work today. I found my box cutter and a receipt in the pockets, but not my keys. I checked my desk, the kitchen table, by where I had my wallet, anywhere I could have put it, anywhere I was, my bathroom, my desk. I even checked the outside of my door to my apartment because, oh, maybe I left them hanging in there. Sure. Nope, not there. And I'm just running out of ideas. Like, I'm going to have to grab my backup key. I don't even have a backup key for the apartment, so I got to hold my roommates home when I come back so I can get back in. Paul, were your keys in your hand the whole time? No. Okay. Because I've I've done something like that before. I was going to say, do you want to take a guess where I did find them? Because I did find them. That was my only guess, is in your hand. Almost as dumb. In my hoodie pocket. You were wearing your hoodie? Yeah, but I already had my jacket on over it. So I was checking my pants pockets. I was checking my jacket pockets. And finally, I thought, like, what else was I wearing today? Oh, I had my hoodie on at work. And I was like, I still have my hoodie on. (laughs) Unzip my jacket. Oh, there are my keys. Like, oh, Paul, you dummy. I'd probably grabbed them the same time I grabbed my wallet like five minutes before I was leaving and totally forgot I put it in my hoodie pocket. As soon as I put my jacket on over it, I lost all thought of my hoodie's existence. Yeah. I've definitely done things like that too. I'm so, pretty yeah, sure I've uh, looked for my phone when my phone was in my hand and I'm like, <laughs> how can I use my phone to look for my phone? Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> I remember the viral video of the woman who's rocking her empty baby stroller with her foot and she's holding her baby (laughs) in her arm. And then she looks down at the stroller, sees it's empty. She freaks out. She gets up. She starts walking back and forth. And after about five seconds, she looks down and realizes she's holding her own baby. Wow. (laughs) Where'd you see that? On like Instagram or something. That's funny. Yeah. So anyways, what are we talking about today, Jason? Well, we're talking about something that has nothing to do with keys or babies. We're talking about the city of Nara. I am really excited for this episode. Yeah? Did you have fun with the research? I had so much fun with the research. I didn't want to talk much about it to you. I was so hyped. I was like, let me save the hype for the episode. Yeah. And we can geek out about all this stuff. Um, so maybe we start with a very brief overview of like what is Nara? What puts it on the map? Yeah. Well, I mean, the first thing, you you already mentioned the deer, well-mannered deer. I feel like in the West, that's probably the most famous thing about Nara. It definitely is. So we'll talk more about the deer, but there are deer pretty much literally just walking all over the city, and they're tame, and people feed them, and they're not afraid of humans. 
it's a really unique experience. Yeah. But there's a ton more to Nara than just some friendly deer. Yes. Nara is the ancient capital of Japan. It was the capital before Kyoto was the capital. The first permanent capital in Japanese history. Yes. Permanency lasted 80 years or so. Mm-hmm. So Nara is located on Honshu, the biggest island in Japan, and it's in Kansai. So it's slightly less than an hour by train from Kyoto and Osaka. Yeah, it's kind of just east of Osaka, just south of Kyoto. And if you want to learn more about kind of that surrounding region, the Kansai region, check out episode three. We had a whole episode about that area. So, you know, Nara isn't the capital of Japan anymore, but it is actually the capital of Nara Prefecture. Yes, it is. That's something. Population figure I saw was 367,000. So it's not a small town, but it doesn't feel like a big city either. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is the largest city in its prefecture. Yes. And the sixth largest in the Kansai region. Okay. So, Paul, you and I have both been to Nara. Yes. We were there together. That was yeah. the only time you've been, right? Yeah. Okay. I went there a couple of years before that by myself, and I explored a bit more than we did when we were there. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, we have some personal experiences that we will pepper in here as we go along. Yeah, but I will say Nara is one of the few places that I've been that I really want to go back to. I feel like we didn't do a ton when we were there. We mostly just hung out with the deer. Looking at just the top places that I researched, you could easily spend two very full days going to all this really famous, great stuff. And we spent like half a day there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, on my first trip, I spent... Pretty much an entire day there, but I still didn't hit probably even half of the stuff that we're going to talk about. So yeah, I definitely want to go back and see a lot of that stuff that I missed. So due to the fact that Nara was the first permanent capital of Japan, and it was so long ago in the early 700s, it's right when Buddhism was really taking off in Japan. So there's a ton of history. There's a ton of great, really old temples and shrines. Thinking about how to describe Nara, I feel like you're going to get like 80 to 90% of what you could get in Kyoto in Nara, but it's more of a smaller town feel, less crowded feel. And a lot of it's even older because most of the most famous stuff was built before the capital even moved to Kyoto. So Kyoto's got a lot of old stuff, but it's got a lot of stuff that's also like 500 years old, 300 years old. So many things in Nara are 1,300 years old. Yeah, I never really thought of it that way, but it is kind of like Kyoto in that like a lot of the attractions are temples and shrines. And yeah, like you said, it's got the history, a little less people, plus it's got friendly deer. Like how could you not go? I would say if you're in Kyoto or Osaka on your trip, definitely go to Nara. It's right there, and it's so cool. Yeah, it's 100% worth a day trip if you're in the area. It's also 100% worth spending a few days in Nara itself. Sure. Either way, can't go wrong. Go see Nara. And we're about to tell you why. One interesting fact I have about Nara, it is considered the birthplace of refined sake. I did not know that. People have been drinking crude alcohols for a long time, but closer to what we think of today as sake. 
comes from NARA originally. They were the first ones that were like, let me take this white cloudy stuff and make it clear. Let's see what happens if you do that. Yeah. Okay. Did you look up anything about the etymology? I know you're into that sometimes. I think I saw a big section about it and I was like, this is just too much. Yeah, there's a massive section on it. There's so many theories. Nobody can agree on where the name comes from. But a few of the top ideas are it comes from an ancient Japanese word for flat land or it comes from an ancient Korean word for kingdom because Nara was the center of the beginnings of the Japanese empire. Why would a Korean name be applied in Japan, though? There was a big conflict of some sort in Korea around the time the capital was in Nara in Japan, and they took in a lot of refugees from the southern kingdom of Korea. And that's actually really what drove Buddhism into Japan, too. But Buddhism came from China, Paul. Through Korea. Oh. So there was some sort of Korean influence during the times before and during the Nara period. Interesting. Although I don't think some Japanese like that theory. There's also the theory that it came from the Japanese word for oak. Oak? Oak. The tree? Yeah, yeah, because there's oak trees nearby, but that could be anywhere. And there's lots of places in Japan called Nara. This is just the most famous one. Hmm. So there, there you go. There's also like 20 other ideas if you want to go research it. Cool. Thanks for the fun facts. So before we get too deep into this episode, I just want to mention that we are very excited to announce that we have both Discord and Patreon in the works. And this is going to allow us a lot of new and different ways to connect with the community. So I'm very excited about it. Me too, man. That's going to be great. I mean, that's my favorite part of doing the podcast is connecting with our listeners. So any opportunity to do that more, it's going to be awesome. So be on the lookout for more details. We will release them as soon as they're ready to go. Oh, yeah. Well, shall we dive into history now? Yes. And, you know, I always start my research with history And I always find myself like writing all this stuff. And then I'm like, oh, wait a minute. I have like three full pages of history. And my notes are usually like four or five pages long. I should probably cut this down a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, there's a lot there. I don't know. I feel like I synthesized mine at least into a a reasonable amount here. Okay. But there's going to be more history that comes up as we're talking about these temples and shrines and things too. I mean... I cut it down a little bit, but I don't think I want to leave any of this out. <laughs> How far back did you go? Where, where do you want to start? Um, the first thing I have is about the Kofun tombs. I was going to start at the Jomon period. If you okay, yeah, all right. Let's, let's go back 10,000 years. I mean, I guess this isn't specifically Nara history, but I mean, almost from the beginning, it seems like at least the Nara area was kind of the center of Japanese culture or what would eventually become Japanese culture, you know? Like, even before NAR was the permanent capital, the temporary capitals were still, like, around that area. Yes. You know? Anyway, so the Jomon period is between 14,000 BC and 300 BC. And at that time, Japan was just made up of small villages of hunter-gatherer types. This is also well before Japan had a written language. So, of course, there's relatively little 
known about this period. But the Nihon Shoki and the Kojiki, two really, really old books, like historical chronicles that were written in the 8th century, they talked about some legendary emperors dating back to 660 BC, which is in the Jomon period. So the first of these emperors was Jim, Emperor Jim. Emperor Jim. You read about him? <laughs> Isn't it Jimmo or something? Jimu. Jimu. But I like yeah, to call the, him Jim. The first emperor of Japan who's largely mythical. Yeah. Those books, the Nihon Shoki and the Kojiki, are kind of a mix of history and mythology because that's how history was passed along back then. It was just verbal and things get embellished and all that kind of stuff. So the story is Jimu came from Kyushu. He conquered the Osaka and Nara area, and he founded his empire in Nara Prefecture, or, you know, what is now Nara Prefecture. So it wasn't actually Nara City specifically, but like I said, really close by. Yeah. So you could say that this area around Nara was kind of the center of Japanese society, maybe even longer than Kyoto was, you know, just going way, way further back. It's definitely the beginnings of the Japanese empire for sure. Yeah. So after Jimu, there were a bunch of emperors, legendary and historical. And each emperor ruled from a different location. Did we say that already? Like each time there was a new emperor, they would set up a new capital in a different place. We had not specifically mentioned that yet. All right. So Nara was the first time that that tradition stopped and multiple emperors ruled from Nara. Yes, but still before that, there was some other stuff that happened. <laughs> so in the Yayoi period, this is 300 BC to 300 CE, essentially Japan's Bronze Age, metal tools started being developed, they started growing rice in Japan, that kind of stuff. At this time, Shinto was a big deal, but Buddhism still hadn't come to Japan at this point. And then, Paul, you said you had stuff in the Kofun period? Yeah, there's a number of Kofun tombs in the area that date between the 3rd and 7th century. And the Kofun tombs are these large key-shaped mounds that they had tombs at the center of. But this is before any recorded history, so very little is known about the culture that built these. But that seems to have stopped being a thing around the time the Japanese Empire began. Yeah, and about those Kofun, there are still actually some in Nara that you can visit, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. And towards the end of that period, the Kofun period, is when Japan started importing all sorts of stuff from China. They got writing systems for the first time. So that's where those earliest recorded histories came from. And then after that, now we're at the Nara period, right? Yeah, the Nara period begins in 710 when Empress Genmei established the capital of Heijo-kyo, which today we call Nara. Yep, so Heijo-kyo Palace was established, and the surrounding city was kind of set up in a grid with the palace at the north end, which is an idea that came from China, like a lot of other things. Yep. We've talked before about that idea of geomancy coming from China. Like, maybe you've heard of the idea of feng shui. The idea that you need to like set up the geography of your city or organize your home in a way that brings luck. So even now, actually, if you look at that part of the city of Nara right around where the palace was, it's still very much like east-west, north-south grid type situation. 
So, like I said, this is when Nara started to become a center of Buddhism in Japan and a popular pilgrimage destination. And Paul, I thought it was really interesting to see how the rulers at this time, they actually started to focus less on military and more on exerting power through religion. It's almost like they got that idea from China too, like, oh, we can use this religion to kind of keep people under control and spread our power out through all of these temples without making it kind of obvious that this is like the government telling people what to do. (laughs) Yeah. I was actually just thinking today about the Japanese imperial line and how it's lasted so long because I've been listening to a History of China podcast and so many dynasties come and go willy-nilly sometimes. But in Japan, you've got this well over a thousand year old unbroken dynasty of emperors. And I was like, all these shoguns over the years, why did nobody just eventually say, you know what? I'm the emperor now. You'd think one of them would have done that, right? But nobody ever did. Yeah. And then that was my thought though, is the emperor became such a spiritual figurehead without real power, definitely no military authority that the shoguns were maybe like, I don't want to bother with that. Let the emperor do these rituals and be the person. I have the military. I have the real power. I run the government. Almost like the shogun was the preferred position to being an emperor. It was better to be shogun than it was to be emperor. And that's why nobody ever took over as emperor. Yeah. You know, have you listened to the whole uh, History of Japan podcast? No. So I'd had that on my list of podcasts for a long time, but I hadn't really gotten super into it. But I just started listening to more of that, and I got that same sense that, you know, we've talked about all of these different shogunates over the centuries, but it's like every single time, the shogunate didn't say, we're the only people that matter. It's like they would each grab onto the emperor and be like, hey, this is our emperor now, (laughs) and we're in charge, but look, we have the emperor, and he's the one that kind of shows who's in charge, if that makes sense. Yeah. He's your token of legitimacy. Exactly, yeah. That's a great way of putting it. In 735 to 737, there was a devastating smallpox epidemic that spread from Kyushu in the south all the way to eastern Honshu and Nara. And it killed an estimated one-third of the Japanese population in those areas. Yikes. It's a lot of people. Yeah, I did notice that on some of these temples and shrines... They were built to pray for the ailing health of this person or that person. The timing doesn't necessarily always line up, but it was interesting. Hmm, Yeah, if there's diseases going around, try to get the favor of the gods and keep people healthy. Totally. Sounds like that ties in perfectly with what I have next. Okay. So in the mid-700s, Emperor Shomu had Todaiji Temple built. We're going to talk about that. That's like one of the biggest attractions, most important temples in Nara. And he had the world's largest bronze Buddha built, which sits inside the temple. And he built this in response to a series of disasters and epidemics, probably including that smallpox epidemic, because he wanted to inspire confidence in the government. So he's like, hey, look, we know things haven't been going great lately, but check it out. We built the biggest Buddha in the world So, you know, we're doing something. We're going to take care of you. Buddha's coming to help us out, right? 
Yeah. So this temple is still there. You can still visit it. And while the building itself, of course, isn't the original one from the 700s, that original Buddha is still there. Yeah, that's crazy. It's insane. It dates back to 752. Right? Like, what? So I, I dug into this because I'm always really curious about that. Like when we talk about, oh, this temple is this old, you know, it's like, well, how much of it is actually that old? And usually there's very little <laughs> that's actually that old, but yeah. pieces of this statue have been recast over the years. I mean, that's inevitable. Things happen. But I think you can still call it the original statue. There seem to be pieces of it that are from the original one in 752. And I have more details later on when we get into that temple. But I just think that's so cool. Okay. Yeah, that is awesome. But believe it or not, Paul, did you know that's not even the oldest Buddha in Nara Prefecture? Yeah. Okay, fine. <laughs> well, I just did research all this stuff. I guess. Do you know where the older one is? Uh, it's in my notes somewhere. I don't remember off the top of my head. There's one at Ascadera, which is just south of Nara. And that one dates back to the year 609. Ah, yeah. Asagadera is credited as being the oldest Buddhist temple in all of Japan. Makes sense. I mean, that's pretty much the beginning of Buddhism in Japan. Yeah. Another historical note is that randomly from 740 to 745, the capital was moved away from Nara, but then it came right back. All right. So by 784... Emperor Kamu was feeling threatened by the power that the Buddhist clergy was gaining, which is kind of ironic when you think about it. Right, they just spent 70 years using Buddhism to legitimize the power of the emperor, but by doing so, these monasteries became extremely powerful yeah. and very politically active. Man, this religion is starting to get a mind of its own. Yeah. Can't keep it under control anymore. So the emperor decided to move the capital to Nagaoka, which is not far away. And then in 794, the Nara period ended because he moved the capital again, this time to modern-day Kyoto, which kicks off the Heian period. And it would stay in Kyoto for a few years, 1100 or so. Just a few. So when the Heian period began, the Fujiwara clan ruled for about 300 years. The arts flourished. We've talked about the Heian period. This is like the peak of the imperial court. And sadly, at this point, the palace in Nara was pretty much abandoned, and it just kind of fell apart. Yeah, they started farming rice on the old palace grounds. <laughs> the temples, though, did remain powerful. And so all the temples were still around, and Nara even got the nickname Nanto, meaning southern capital, because there was still so much political power there. Interesting. Towards the end of the Heian period, Taira no Shigehira was ordered by his father, Taira no Kiyomori, to depress the power of the various Buddhist parties in Nara, mainly Kofukuji and Todaiji, because at the time they were backing an opposition government group led by Prince Mochihito, who was the brother of the sitting emperor. And the Mochihito. Yeah. Sorry. I, I don't think I've heard that name before, but it just strikes me as kind of funny because Hito is the word for like a person and mochi is a delicious rice-based treat. He's, so he's a, like he's a mochi person. Mochi man. <laughs> <laughs> the Taira at the time were probably the most powerful clan in all of Japan. 
So it eventually led to a collision between Taira and the temples in 1180, in which both Kofukuji and Todaiji were set on fire, resulting in massive damage and some loss of architectural heritage. Good thing bronze isn't flammable. Yeah. The Buddha survived. Yeah, they, they've both been rebuilt, of course. Although the Taira ended up losing that war, which led to the ending of that period. Yeah. Although Mochihito did not make it out. He perished in that fight. In the fight? He was running away after the fight, and they caught him and, okay. and, and ended him. Sorry, I was, I was having a really bad thought. I was imagining, like, the fire in Mochihito. He turned into, like, toasted mochi. <laughs> oh no sorry that's bad anyway so 1185 marks the beginning of the kamakura period when the country was ruled by the kamakura shogunate near modern day tokyo in the muramachi period which started in 1333 emperor go daigo tried to grab power back from the shogunate but they were not having it so they sent a general named ashikaga takauji to show the emperor who was boss. So the emperor fled into the mountains south of Nara City and hid out at Yoshimiza Jinja Shrine. You can actually still visit this shrine, and they have some artifacts from this time period, 1300s. That's awesome. Yeah. But get this, Ashikaga Takauji, this is the guy that was sent by the Kamakura Shogunate to go defeat the emperor he ended up joining up with the emperor. He took over Kyoto and then laid siege to Kamakura. Wow. I wonder how that went. I mean, you know, there's some more details that you can read about, but it's like... A lot of this ancient history is really like Game of Thrones stuff. Yeah, yeah. Dealings and alliances and switching sides. And it's like, man, this emperor is such a cool dude. Let me just, let me just go kill those guys that sent me here in the first place. <laughs> yeah. Crazy. So that's basically how the Kamakura period ended. And long story short, the Ashikaga shogunate was formed and ruled from 1336 to 1467. Next came the Sengoku period. This was around 150 years of pretty much constant civil war. And then a bunch of stuff happened leading into the Edo period. <laughs> We've talked about all this yeah. before, that stuff. One note from the Edo period that I thought was really interesting is that Nara became a popular sightseeing destination all the way back in the Edo period. Yeah, all of a sudden people were less worried about dying and a bunch of, when yeah. all these warlords are running around killing people and all of a sudden they're like, you know what? Let's go look at some cool stuff. You can actually travel in peace for once. Yeah. But if you think about it, even during the Edo period, a lot of this stuff in Nara was already pushing 900, 1,000 years old. That's insane. So even for them, like we're way closer to the Edo period than the Edo period was to the Nara period. That's crazy to think about. Yeah. 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 So the Edo period lasted until 1868, of course, when the Meiji emperor was restored to power. And a whole lot changed in Nara at this time because the new government decided they had to split up Shinto and Buddhism. Yeah. Talked about that before. Yeah. And of course, Nara had a bunch of really old religious places that mixed together these religions. So a lot of temples were destroyed. Some of them were converted into Shinto shrines. Buddhist monks were forced to become Shinto priests. All sorts of crazy stuff. Yeah. 
It was a shake-up time for sure. Since then, there's been a flowering of arts and architecture in Nara, as well as elsewhere in Japan. A lot of Western influences helped shape modern Nara as well. And of course, these days, it's a popular destination for domestic and international tourists. Yeah, tourism is a big part of the economy in Nara. The economy also relies heavily on Osaka. Being so close to such a huge city, a lot of people that live in Nara actually commute to Osaka or near there for work. So they're very intertwined with the Osakan economy. Yeah. Last note I had for history is that Nara was designated a UNESCO World Heritage Site in 1998. The last thing I have for Nara history is very recent, and we've talked about this. On July 8th, 2022, former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe was shot and killed with a homemade firearm while in Nara campaigning. That's true. It's crazy. That will be remembered for a long time as a historical note for Nara. Yeah. Well, we've learned a lot about the history, Jason. I think it's time to tour the city. Let's do it. Do some sightseeing in, in Japan. Japan. Oh, <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> I waited 112 episodes to drop that. <laughs> I hope it wow. was worth it for everyone. And I'm glad you read my mind. <laughs> I thought it was pretty satisfying. Yeah, that was a good one. So I would say... Most of the interesting stuff in Nara is located kind of on the east side of the city, in and around Nara Park. There's like this huge park on the east side, basically. So let's start on the west side. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I want to save the best for last. Okay. I was planning to start at Nara Park, but that makes sense. Save the best for last. And there's just like, there's not that much stuff in the west to talk about. So let's just get it out of the way, and then we can go crazy about Nara Park. Well, let's start at the beginning of it all, then. Heijo Palace, the whole reason that Nara is so famous. Yeah, so again, this is where most of those emperors lived back during the Nara period, in the 8th century. The palace grounds are massive, too. It's one kilometer by one kilometer. That's a lot of space. Yeah, so this is like the area that was set up like a grid, like very similar to what a Chinese capital would have looked like at that time. So it's kind of cool to see, like, how this area is laid out. There are all these little subdivisions. Paul, did you see a a kind of a map of what it would have looked like when all the buildings were there and stuff? Yes. So it's like they got this big rectangular wall that goes around the entire compound, right? But then inside that, there are a bunch of other little walled-off rectangles that have different administrative buildings in them and stuff. I appreciate how like logical and clean it looks, just the layout of it. Yeah. It kind of goes hand in hand with the culture back then too. Everybody had their place. Like you're this rank or this job, this is your area. You don't go to the other areas of the palace. It was very rigidly separated like that. Yeah. All of the original buildings are not there anymore. Although one original building does survive because it was moved in the 8th century to Tosho Daiji Temple or Toshu Daiji Temple. That's kind of redundant. Yeah, yeah. G means temple, basically. But yeah, most of the buildings, or I mean all the other buildings, like we said, the palace was abandoned. They either like slowly deteriorated or burned down, all the other buildings. So 
there actually really wasn't much of anything at this site until as recently as the 1970s. That's when modern archaeologists started digging up these ruins there. And then in the early 2000s, they started reconstructing some of the buildings. Yeah. We have the advantage that they didn't do much and they didn't develop the area. Like I mentioned before, they did a lot of rice farming on the palace grounds. So it's really easy to do archaeology now because nothing got torn up or built on top of the old stuff. So if you dig down a little bit, you find all the old foundations, you find a bunch of artifacts. So it's a great place to do archaeological research. That's awesome. So yeah, if you visit now, there are really just a few reconstructed buildings. Like there's not a ton there. It kind of looks like a lot of open space still. But Paul, I got some fun facts for you. I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole about these reconstructions. Okay. So the company that took the lead for these first reconstructions is called Takenaka Corporation. You ever heard of them? Not that I recall. Well, it's currently one of the five biggest construction contractor companies in Japan. Oh, like, not, not three biggest? No, five biggest. Oh, okay, okay. But yeah, it's, it's this huge business, and it's still a family business that dates back to the year 1610. Wow. Like they can trace each generation back to 1610. The company was started by a guy in Nagoya named Tobe Masataka Takenaka, who specialized in building temples and shrines. So the company is now led by the 17th generation of this family. And this same company built some of the most important buildings in Japan, like Tokyo Tower, Tokyo Dome, and also some of the first Western-style buildings in the country. Okay. Isn't that cool? What a pedigree. Yeah. And in 2006, they acquired one of their competitors another super old family-run construction business called Kongo Gumi, which was even older. That one dated back 1,427 years. Wow. Yeah. Perhaps uh, the most impressive rebuilt building is the former audience hall, which is the largest building on the palace grounds currently. Wait, what did you call it? Former audience hall. I think I saw it called the Great Hall of State. Or Daigoku-den? Yes, that is the same place. Daigoku-den in Japanese. The reason I saw it's called the former audience hall is because about halfway through the Nara period, they built another audience hall. So it was the first one that they had. This is where the emperor met with people. It was a big building. There's a throne in it. I, I was wondering who the audience was. Yeah, it was if you got an audience with the emperor, this is where you would go. Got it. It was rebuilt in 2010 to commemorate the 1300th anniversary of Nara becoming the capital of Japan. That just sounds crazy to say 1300th (laughs) anniversary. Right. We've talked about this before. Like the oldest buildings around here are what, a couple hundred, 250 maybe years old. Yeah. So thinking 1300 is just wild. Although people in Europe are like, (laughs) nothing. Uh, The audience hall is decorated with the four animals of the directions of the compass and also the 12 animals of the lunar calendar painted over the ceiling. More of that Chinese influence, huh? Yeah. 
There also was a ladder audience hall, the one that was built next, and that has not been rebuilt, but you can still go and see the foundations of it on the palace grounds. Cool. Another main structure you can see is the Suzaku Gate, which is the main entrance to the Capitol compound. It's pretty impressive looking. It's got that Chinese-inspired red and white coloring with hipped and gabled roofs. Nice. There's also a museum there that can tell you about what they've learned through those excavations and research, all that archaeology stuff that's been ongoing since 1959. They even have ancient artifacts in there that you can see. Yeah, I saw they have old wood tablets, too, that they used to write on because paper was so expensive. Cool. So having actual documents from 1,300 years ago is so cool. Yeah. They also have redone the East Palace Garden, which I kind of really want to go see because that's got to be one of the oldest gardens in Japan, although obviously it's been rebuilt, but they built it to how they think it was back then. So you could see the evolution of gardens. Yeah, we did a whole episode on Japanese gardens, and they started as a place for the imperial family to hang out and host banquets and things. So this is kind of like the beginning version of what later evolved into all the gardens we know and love today. I did see that they confirmed that it's like in the same location as the original garden, but I wonder how close they got to like how it actually looked. Yeah, I think they did their best, but I, I, I don't know if we can say. How do you learn about that from archaeology? How do you figure out what a garden used to look like? Uh, you might be able to dig it up and find out like, oh, they dug an artificial pond in this area or something like that. Maybe. They maybe have some written records or paintings. Yeah. So... Paul, what was your impression of this area if you were to visit? Like, is this a place you really want to visit now? Yes. I'm a huge history and archaeology buff, though. So I think I get like an extra kick out of this. You get to see the reconstructed buildings. You get to see the foundations of the old buildings. They even have an excavation site that you can go like look at. Like mid-excavation, there's a place where you can go see the actual archaeology happening, which sounds so cool to me. And then that museum you talked about with all those ancient things, the fact that you can see all that stuff on the same grounds makes me really want to go here. Yeah. The museum and the excavation does sound pretty cool, but I saw actually a lot of reviews that said that it seems like it feels empty when you're there. Because like we said, it's just it's this huge compound and there aren't many buildings there now. So it's just like a lot of empty space. And it seemed like, I mean, it is kind of out of the way of like a lot of the other big attractions in Nara. So like not a lot of people make it out there. And I kind of got the impression that it only makes sense to go there if you're just really into the history. Okay. I'd say fair enough. But I'd also say, yes, it's not right next to any other main attraction, but nothing in Nara is that far away. Like, it's really near a train station. It's well, not hard to get there. Yeah. I mean, on the east side of the city, everything's walkable. To get to this place, you need to take a train for a while. You would need to deliberately come just to see the palace. Yeah. Uh, one modern note, they have a visitor center there that includes a virtual reality theater. Virtual reality theater? Yeah. What does, that even, what does that mean? I, I think we have to go there and see for ourselves. All right.
So a bit southwest of Heizhou Palace is Toshodaiji, a Buddhist temple that was founded in 759 by a Chinese monk called Ganjin, who was invited to Japan by the emperor himself. And this monk actually played a pretty important role in introducing Buddhism to Japan. So the main hall of this temple, the classic Golden Hall, is a national treasure. And Paul, you said that there's one building from Heijo Palace that was preserved, right? Yes. That's here. The lecture hall was moved from Heijo Palace to this temple. There are several other buildings in the compound, too. It looks like it's just a fun place to explore. And Ganjin, that monk, is even buried there. Yeah. I heard his grave sites down a little path in a really peaceful, secluded area. Sounds nice. They also have a very famous statue of Ganjin, but it's only displayed to the public once a year for a few days around June 6, which is the anniversary of his death. Although, in 2013, for the 1250th anniversary of Ganjin's death, a replica of the statue was created that is on permanent display to the public. So you can go see what it looks like. You're just probably not going to get to see the original. So it's a thousand yen for entrance fee. I'm not going to list off every entrance fee there is, but I remember when we were talking about Kyoto. I remember thinking I was surprised about like how much money I spent just going to all these temples. So I added up the totals from like all the temple entrance fees from the things we're going to talk about today. And then I've got a total at the end for budget-conscious travelers or just a part of the travel expense you maybe normally wouldn't think of. Okay. All right, well, let's move on to Yakushiji, which is uh, very nearby. Yeah, this one's just south of Toshodaiji, and I thought this one looked really impressive, personally. Okay. So this is one of Japan's oldest temples. Emperor Tenmu had it built in the late 7th century because his wife was sick. Makes perfect sense, right? Your wife gets sick, you're like, man, I need to build a temple. I do wonder about this, though. Like, how quickly can you build a temple? Like, yeah, how long was she sick? Aren't these people either dead or better, like, by the time anything happens? Well, he was the emperor, so maybe he got together thousands of people and was like, you each put up, you know, a log or whatever, and then or maybe have a temple in no time. Maybe only the temples get finished of the people that got better. Because they're like, I'm going to build a temple. And then your wife gets better. Like, I better finish this temple. The gods answered me. Sure. But yeah, this place looks crazy because there's a huge main hall that looks great on its own. But then there's also a pagoda, not even a single pagoda. There's a pagoda on each side. There are two pagodas, like symmetrical, you know, you see the hall and the pagodas on the side. It looks really cool. You don't usually see that kind of symmetry, I feel like. Although... I guess with the, the Chinese influence and that whole grid kind of layout, maybe there's more of that symmetry in Nara than you would see elsewhere. Hmm, interesting thought. The East Pagoda has survived all the way back from 730. That's incredible. Yeah. There's also a newer separate complex built in 1991 in the honor of Genjo Sanzoin, who is a very famous Chinese monk known for his wide travels. But... This place is only open about half the year, so you may or may not get to see it. So real quick, I also want to mention a place called Horyuji, 
which is kind of quite a ways southwest of all this stuff. Like it's technically not even inside the Nara city limits, but it's important because it was one of the seven great temples of Nara. Uh, so it was founded in 607, but the Nihon Shoki, that really old book, says that it burned down entirely in 670 when it was struck by lightning, but then it was reconstructed not too long after that. So it's still like widely recognized as the oldest wooden building in the world. Yeah, that's so cool. I went down the rabbit hole on that. To see like if it was actually the original or... Yeah, like did it burn down? When was it exactly constructed? Because I saw some sources that were like, it dates all the way back from the Nara period. And I was like, what year? Yeah, what does that mean exactly? But it's been in existence without burning down or falling since at least the end of the Nara period. Okay. Which puts it very, very old. So it's probably just been repaired over and over and over and over again. Yeah. You know, a bunch of times when I was doing this research, I kept thinking of the ship of Theseus thing. What's that? You know what I'm talking about? No. So... The ship of Theseus is this idea that like, okay, there's this ship, but then, you know, this part breaks and you got to replace that. And then this other piece breaks and you got to replace that. And eventually you've replaced every piece of it. The question is, is it still the same thing? You know, because I think that's basically what happened with a lot of these super old buildings is like no part of it is actually from that time period, but it's still like there's always been that structure there throughout the centuries. Yeah. I'd count it as original if it never got completely torn down and rebuilt. You know, if you replace a piece to resemble the piece it replaced and then another piece, another piece, it's still like the exact same structure. Yeah. So to me, it counts. Okay. Yeah, this place looks really cool. And what struck me about it that I really like is that there's none of the red that you usually see at temples. It's just like a natural wood color and some white walls. And I just really like that look, you know? Agreed. Same reason I like Hiroshima Castle. A lot of the architecture in Nara is going to be really cool because it's so old. Another thing it's famous for is it has some of the oldest surviving statues of Buddha in Japan that were built in the Asuka period, which was right before the Nara period. And it's got a little exhibition hall that shows... Buddhist statues throughout the years in Japan. So you can see how they looked very Indian influenced at first, and then they slowly developed a more Japanese style over the years. All right, so let's start heading east over to Nara Park. And on the way, we might start to see some of those deer wandering around. There's no restrictions for them they can kind of go wherever they want so they actually do wander like a fair ways west into the actual city anyone driving a car in nara is just ready for a deer to be walking down the street can you imagine how bad it would feel running into a sacred deer awful it'd feel absolutely awful even a normal deer i I can't imagine that's a good experience (laughs) but you've never hit a deer have you paul no me either i've heard horror stories about people that I mean, from people that have hit deer. When I was a kid, I remember we totally spun out on a highway and ended up in a snowbank because my dad slammed on the brakes to avoid a deer. Wow. And then the car behind us just destroyed the deer. Oh. So we ended up all right. We got out of the snowbank and there was pretty much no damage to the car. Oh, wow. The car behind us that hit the deer was probably totaled. Yikes. Yeah. We were all okay, though. Glad to hear it. 
Yeah, these deer, they'll just be standing around, even in like really busy touristy areas in huge crowds of people. The deer are just walking along like, man, there are a lot of people here. So, like you might see a few west of the park, but as you approach the park, I mean, you're going to be blown away by how many of these deer you see. There are gangs of deer roaming around, jumping tourists for crackers. <laughs> yeah, I think the briefest way to put the story is that the deer have widely and longly been regarded as heavenly animals protecting the city. So they've been treated really well and fed by citizens for hundreds of years and they've become completely used to people and they're used to getting fed and they're almost basically like tame deer now. So I have some details on how this whole thing started because I'd always repeated what I heard is like, oh, they're like messengers of the gods or something and that's why they're special and whatever. That was kind of all I knew. Yeah. But I got the whole story. Okay. So the reason for the deer relates back to the history of a shrine in the park that we're going to talk about in a bit called Kasuga Taisha. And there was a kami named Takemikazuchi who came to Nara back in the 700s to guard the new capital of Japan. They say that he appeared riding a white deer on the top of this mountain, like in the park. We're also going to talk about the mountain. So ever since then, deer have been seen as sacred animals in Nara. I mean, this was back, like I said, in the 700s. Deer have been protected in Nara since the 700s. Hundreds. Yeah. That's crazy. And genetic testing has actually shown that these deer in Nara are distinct from the deer in other parts of the country and that this genetic differentiation happened around 1400 years ago in the Nara period. So there's like genetic evidence that they've been treated as sacred and, you know, fed by people living there and everything for 1400 years. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. In fact, up until 1637, killing one of these deer was punishable by death. You know that? It's not anymore? Not anymore. Ah. Actually, after World War II, the deer lost their sacred status, and now they're designated as a natural monument. Okay. Still impressive. Yeah. I saw in 2015, there were an estimated 1,200 of these deer in Nara. I heard the deer did struggle a little bit because of the lack of tourists during the pandemic. They lost a huge source of their food. Yeah, because I mean, a lot of their diet is these crackers that you can buy in the park to feed to them. And if you're visiting, like you won't have trouble finding these crackers. You'll see people selling them everywhere Yeah, for like 150 to 200 yen for a little packet of like, what was it like five crackers or something like that? Yeah, five or 10 crackers. So the deer have learned that the Japanese people get a kick out of them bowing their heads. So a lot of them will do that when they see you have crackers to try to get one from you. Those are the polite deer. Yes. The rest of the deer are going to come up when they see that you have crackers and they're going to be like, hey, give me a cracker. Give me a cracker. I said, give me a freaking cracker. And then they'll like start nipping at your clothes and stuff. And then I mean, pretty soon... You got to be careful because they will surround you very quickly. And then it's like, oh crap, I have nowhere to go. And you just kind of got to throw your crackers and like run away screaming. I saw a couple timid people in the park get absolutely bullied by some deer. They are bullies. So I made a concerted effort to give crackers to the polite deer. And I stayed to anyone that got too close or too pushy. I was like, no cracker for you. 
I'm giving it to the polite guy standing back a few feet over here. I have a bunch of pictures and videos of these deer, and I have a video of Paul doing exactly what he just said. Like he's like holding the cracker and he's like, no, no, shaking his finger at the deer. Like you don't get a cracker until you <laughs> behave. Yep. So I'll be posting that stuff on Instagram. I feel like I had to make up for the people that were getting pushed over. Because yeah. if we all do that, the deer could get more and more aggressive over the years. I was like, no, 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 no. We need to keep these deer friendly yeah. and polite. You gotta, you gotta teach them a lesson. Yes. Yeah. So, Paul, are these deer the same species of deer that we have here in the U.S.? No. Yeah. They're called Sika deer, or northern spotted deer, or Japanese deer, and they're generally a lot smaller than the deer that we have here. Yeah, I was just really amazed at how many were around and how they didn't care about us, because I've seen quite a few deer here, but you can't get within 50 feet of a deer here, and it's gone. Like, they do not like people. Probably because they get hunted here. Yeah. They're naturally skittish prey species. Yeah, you might get the opportunity. I mean, if you're from the U.S., you'll almost definitely get the opportunity to get closer to a deer than you ever have been before. Yeah. And there's so many, like, I, I learned a lot about deer just being around them. Like, I didn't realize that deer made sounds, you know? <laughs> yeah, deer noises. Yeah. I also have a recording of that. I'll post that on Instagram too. Like in the park, you'll just hear deer all over like yelling. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I could imitate it, but I feel like that'd be embarrassing. It'd be tough. So yeah, it's important to remember that these deer are wild animals and there are signs all over the place reminding you of that fact. And it sounds like actually in more recent years, more and more people have been getting injured by the deer. Oh, wow. I saw that in 2016, a record 121 people were injured by the deer. That this also lines up with record numbers of international tourists. So you can draw your own conclusions there. I, I suspect that a lot of people just don't maybe uh, respect the fact that they're wild animals as much as they should. Yeah. I saw a lot of people petting them and touching them I mean, and you getting can pet really them. close. Just don't like, I would say don't tease them. Like, don't, you know, wave a cracker in their face and then be like, ha ha, you don't get the cracker. Yeah. Like, no, they're going to get angry. Cool. That's not cool. Treat them with respect. I kept my hands off them, but some of them will let you touch them. You definitely can pet them. Yeah. Uh, another thing I wanted to note real quick, as you get closer to the park, there's an area just west of the park called Naramachi. You're going to pass right by it if you're walking to the park from Nara Station. And this used to be the Merchant District in Nara. So it's just a really fun place to explore. You'll see tons of gift shops, cafes, art galleries, little museums. So just keep your eyes open and you'll probably see some cool stuff. And sake breweries. Oh, that's always a good thing. So there's a ton of great sights to see in Nara Park. And the one the closest to the entrance of the park is Kofukuji. Yeah, this one was established at the same time that Nara became the capital of Japan, year 710. And it was the family temple of the Fujiwara clan, which was very powerful at the time. So there are several buildings there now, but back in the day, there were over 150 buildings here, Paul. Wow, what a huge place. Yeah. So now you can see their five-story pagoda, which is the second tallest wooden pagoda in Japan. 
That's impressive. I think that's what I remember from it. Like when I first went there in 2014, I remember seeing that pagoda. That was like the first exciting thing that I saw as I got to the park. But since I was there, and even since we were there together, they've reconstructed another building. Okay. The Central Golden Hall was just completed in 2018. They also have the Eastern Golden Hall, and they have a National Treasure Museum. You do have to pay to get into these three buildings, but the rest of the temple grounds are free to just wander around. I didn't pay to do anything there. So just past Kofukuji, you're going to run into Nara National Museum, which even on the outside is just a really cool-looking building. Like, it looks like a really fancy Western-style government building or something. Yeah. It was built in 1889, right in the Meiji Restoration westernization process for Japan. Yeah, it's got pillars. It's got real intricate carvings, that kind of stuff. That's what's so cool about Japan is it was built in 1889 in a Western style, but it houses Japanese Buddhist art. Yeah. Yeah, they got statues and scrolls and paintings and artifacts in there. It famously contains the Hell Scroll. Hell Scroll? Yeah. I like it. It it depicts all the lesser hells. Okay. What about the greater hells? Where are they? Those are those are too much. I want the greatest to put hell. on display. All right. You've just got to be an awful person and find out for yourself, I think. Okay. I can do that. <laughs> Working on it. <laughs> Across the street from this museum on the north side, you're going to find Yoshikien Garden, which actually used to be a part of Kofukuji, that first temple that we talked about. And this garden actually has three distinct gardens inside it. That's so cool. Yeah. There's a pond garden, a moss garden. Right up your alley. Yeah. And a tea ceremony garden. That's cool. And then right in the middle, there's this very beautiful traditional wooden tea house. Unfortunately, you can't go inside, but it still looks pretty cool. And the garden's free. Even better. Nice. Right on the edge of that garden is... Believe it or not, another garden. This one is called Isuyen Garden. This is said to be one of the most beautiful gardens in the city. And it's also the city's only promenade garden. Paul, what's a promenade garden? Is that like a strolling garden? Yeah. You just go walk through the garden and it's like every time you turn a corner, it's like you're in a whole new environment. It gives you all these different types of views, different landscapes. They use some cool borrowed scenery here. Oh, yes. From Todaiji's Nandaimon Gate and a nearby mountain that we're going to talk about shortly. Yeah, honestly, this garden looks amazing. There's also a museum right next to the garden that has ancient artifacts from China and Korea. And you might wonder, like, why is, why is this here? Why is there a museum here with Korean stuff? Well, it's actually because these artifacts are from the collection of the family that owns that garden. So admission to the museum is actually included with the admission to the garden. That's cool. Yeah. Every time I see like, oh, Korean artifacts on display in Japan, I just think of like England having like all the Egyptian artifacts at all their museums <laughs> and stuff like, huh, yeah. how did those end up in London? Yeah. Well, how did all these Korean artifacts end up in Japan? Funny how that happens. But they've also got Chinese artifacts, so... Yeah. Well, yeah, Japan's got a history with China too, but 
Anyways, cool stuff. Yep. So, Paul, you mentioned Todaiji. Yeah, the, we must be close, right? If they're using borrowed scenery. Yeah. So, Todaiji is just a little further east, and this is a super important temple. Yes. Remember in the history section, I talked about Emperor Shomu. He had Todaiji built in 752, and it was the head temple in the province. It was a really big deal. And even now, it's one of the most famous and historically significant temples in the entire country. I mean, this, when we talked about like the capital being moved away from Nara to get the government away from the influence of like the clergy, this is basically the center of that, Todaiji. Yeah, this is one of the temples that got burned down for supporting Mochi Man that I talked about <laughs> in, the, in the history section. Yeah. So the main building here is called the Daibutsuden or Big Buddha Hall because it houses that giant Buddha. And until 1998, it was the largest wooden building in the world. That's crazy. Yeah, and get this, it's currently only two-thirds of its original size. It used to be bigger. That's insane. So unfortunately, when we were in Nara, this was all closed off because they were renovating it. Was it? Yes. We could only get to the gate, and it was like fenced off, and we couldn't get inside the gate. Paul, I think you're mistaken. Nah, nah. I gotta say, I remember... We probably, we just have different recollections of this, but I remember walking up to that gate, looking through the little slats and being like, wow, that's cool. And I was like, yeah, man, I went in there last time. Let's go in there. And you were like, nah, I don't think I want to do that. Let's go look at something else. I remember definitely being close for renovations. Maybe you could get closer, but the building with the Buddha in it was closed. Like you couldn't get to the Buddha. I have no recollection of that. Nah, it happened. It happened. I, Probably, I remember maybe. seeing a bunch of people inside that gate that we were peering through walking into the building, and mm. you were just like, nah. Nah, nah, nah. We'll have to agree to disagree. I remember hearing it was the biggest wooden building in the world, and I remember seeing it from like way in the distance. And then and you were like, like wow, that's, that's enough. Huge. I see it. I would have saw the Buddha, I think, if I had the uh, chance. I'm pretty sure that's exactly what you said. Like Word for word was like, I'm not going to see that. Okay, sure, <laughs> sure. Hey, to be fair, we were on a tight schedule. Did we do like Uji that day too or something? We did something else that day. I don't remember. Anyways, I didn't see it. End of story. I saw it on my first trip without Paul, and it was great. So the Daibutsu, the giant Buddha, is 15 meters tall. Yeah, that's about huge. 50 feet. <laughs> it's huge. And as I said earlier, it dates back to 752. Also, as I said earlier, parts of this statue have been recast over the years because they've been damaged, you know, in various ways. But, got some details here. So the current hands were made in the Momoyama period, which is around 1600. And the head was made after that in the Edo period. But like I said earlier, I'm pretty sure that pieces of it are still from the original statue because recently they x-rayed the statue And inside the knee, they found... Did you read this? Do you know where I'm going with this? I didn't read it, but I have a guess. What's your guess? They found a mummified body. That would be really awesome, but not quite. Okay, okay. They did find a human tooth, uh, pearls, mirrors, swords, and jewels. They shoved a bunch of treasure in there? Yeah. Those are like exactly the kinds of treasures that they keep in like pagodas and like Treasure halls. Yeah, and mirrors stuff. are a huge sacred item. Yeah, these they're like really symbolic in yeah. Buddhism, right? Yeah. 
So yeah, these are believed to be the sacred relics of Emperor Shomu, the guy that originally had the statue made. Wow. Isn't that crazy? Wow. I love that. I only have one question for you, Jason. Did you squeeze through the hole in the pillar? That hole is really small. I think you need to be like kid sized to get through there. So I didn't even attempt you it. You didn't even try. Okay, okay. Well, and when I was in there, this place was packed with school kids. Okay. And there was a long line of them ah. wanting to go through that hole. Yeah. So, yeah. And then you're just like waiting in with all the school kids. And then you get up there <laughs> yeah. and you can get like your arm in. And yeah. you're like, oh, guess I can't get through. Yeah, guess I'll never be enlightened. So basically there's a pillar there that has a hole in it that's the size of the nostril of the Buddha statue. Yeah. And if you can squeeze through it, you're said to be granted enlightenment in your next life. Yeah. So bring your kids to this place. Crawl your baby through the hole. (laughs) Just chuck them on through. Do them a favor that'll last them through their next lifetime. Yeah. Well, so I saw some places say you reach enlightenment in your next life. Some places said you get a degree of enlightenment, whatever that means. And some places said it's just for good health and good luck. A degree of enlightenment. Sometimes I try to look up when we're doing these temples, like, oh, they reference this concept of Buddhism. And I look it up and I go deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole. And then I'm like, I would need to study Buddhism for 10 years to even have a basic understanding of what the heck they're talking about here. And that's assuming that there's consistency in religious doctrine. You know? <laughs> yeah, let's, let's not even go down that road. Unless you want to. I'm okay. Okay. Got anything else? Uh, Todaiji also has a museum and several other buildings on the grounds that you can explore. And uh, just recently, actually, in 2015, they were able to determine exactly where there used to be a pagoda there. So they're planning on rebuilding that. Nice. Yeah. So if you keep going even further back into Nara Park, into a more kind of woodsy area, you're probably going to run into Kasugataisha. This is the one that we mentioned a couple times now related to the origin of the sacred deer idea. So do you remember how Kofukuji was the Fujiwara clan's family temple? This is that family's shrine. It was established in 768. I love that covering all their bases. I've got a temple. I've got a shrine. We're, we're covering all the religion. Yeah. Whatever God is in charge, we're in their favor. So there's that story about the kami showing up riding a deer. According to legend, that's actually the reason that this shrine was built, to enshrine that kami along with three others. And then I guess later on, they even added a fifth kami. Okay. Yeah. So what is Kasuga Taisha most famous for, Paul? It's most famous for its lanterns. It's got a whole bunch of stone lanterns that you might see in a Japanese garden, maybe. But it's also got a whole bunch of bronze lanterns that hang from the buildings. And these are donated by patrons of the shrine. So, Paul, when you and I were there, we didn't make it this far back into the park, right? We did not. I was too enamored with the deer. It's hard to pull your attention away from the deer the first time you see them. That's true. That's definitely true. On my first trip, I did make it back into this area. And, dude, those lanterns, there are are a ton of them. And they're all, like, hanging all around the outside of the shrine, like... 
I have pictures of just the lanterns because I thought they looked so cool. Yeah, I heard hundreds. There's hundreds of these lanterns. I saw there are over 3,000 lanterns. Wow. Yeah. And in February and August, there are actually two lantern festivals where they light all of these lanterns. Can you imagine what that must look like? I don't think so. I want to see it though. Yeah. And it's like back in, in the woods, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's too bad it's so rare that they do that. Yeah, that sounds awesome, though. So there are several buildings in this complex, and they all look really cool. There's lots of red, lots of lanterns. Another notable event that happens around here is called Shikano Tsunokiri. Did you hear about this, Paul? No. Shika is the deer. I guess Tsuno is their uh, antlers. And I believe kiri means to cut. Antler cutting ceremony? Yes. So in October, they hold these events where they round up a bunch of deer from the park and they ritually saw off their antlers. Hmm. Uh, How do you feel about that? I don't know enough to judge. The deer do shed their antlers every year, so I don't know if they're... I was wondering how... I don't know if it's traumatic for them or if it helps them. I don't know enough. I think I read that they don't seem too happy about it. But. Okay. Well, then, yeah, maybe she let that, let that naturally happen. But yeah. How do they lose their antlers naturally? Do they just fall off at some point? Yeah. They just fall. Hmm. Anyway, so next to the shrine are a couple other interesting places. Paul, did you hear anything about Manyo Botanical Garden? Yes. This garden displays... About 250 different kinds of plants. I saw over 300 species of plants. Wow. These are plants that were described in the Manyoshu, which is Japan's oldest collection of poems that date all the way back to the Nara period. Wow. I think we've talked about Japanese poetry before and how it references a lot of plants and seasonality. Yeah, yeah. So you can go and see the plants that match up with these ancient poems they wrote. That's really cool. That's pretty cool. I feel like you should bring like a poem book with you to this garden and kind of like tie the two together. That might be really fun. Yeah. I saw they also have a wisteria garden, a camellia garden, an iris garden, and a five-grain garden that shows the types of grains that were used for food, textiles, and dyes way back then. Nice. Yeah. Someday I got to figure out why wisteria are so popular in Japan. Yeah. They seem to come up a lot. Also, like, I'd never really heard of camellia until, uh, I don't know, things related to Japan, I hear about that. There's actually a Japanese musical artist known as camellia. Interesting. Yeah. Just like electronic music. Pretty good, actually. Nice. Some of their songs are in Beat Saber. That's where I first heard them. Ah, okay. Yeah. Um, so that, the Botanical Garden is just on the west side of the Shrine Grounds. And if you head east from the Shrine, you'll find yourself in Mount Kasuga Primeval Forest. And I've always loved the sound of that word, primeval. Yeah. Maybe it's yeah. because it has evil in it. Yeah. But like... I looked that up because I wasn't sure exactly what it meant. Like, it just kind of made me think really old. Yeah, right. So, a primeval forest is an ancient forest that has been left relatively undisturbed. That's like the definition. Okay. And so, this forest has been undisturbed for almost 1,400 years, just like the deer. Wow. Hunting and logging have been prohibited there since the year 841. Wow. How crazy is that? Like, That's awesome. you get to see this 
pristine. I mean, how many forests in the world have been untouched for that long? One. I don't know. (laughs) Not many, I would think. Did you hear about all the auxiliary shrines they have scattered throughout the woods? No. There's, They're untouched. How are there shrines in there? Well, there's lots of woods. Right? I think it's like in a different direction. There's walking paths, and 12 of these auxiliary shrines represent the 12 lucky gods. Okay. So you can take a tour and walk and just see all sorts of stuff. That's cool. Uh, I saw that the forest has 175 types of trees. Wow. 60 types of birds, and 1,180 species of insects. Wow. So I think I actually walked through a little bit of this when I was there. Like I was at Kasuga and then I saw some paths and I was like, let me see where this goes. And it, I just seemed to, you know, get further and further into some woods. And I'm like, maybe I don't want to spend, you know, the rest of the day lost in these woods. Yeah. But while I was back there, I did see some wild boars run across the path, which was pretty awesome. I think it was like a giant mama boar and maybe a couple babies. Oh, wow. And like, I don't think at that point I I even realized that there were wild boars in Japan. So it just like shocked me for a second. I was (laughs) like, that's so cool. That's awesome. Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen one. I remember we heard some boars while we were hiking Fushimi Inari at night. Yeah. But I've never seen one in the wild. Yeah. And I just got such a quick glimpse of them and they just flashed across the path into, yeah. you know, the green on. That's yeah. awesome. You see a couple little babies shoot by after. That's, that's yeah. cool. It was cool. Very memorable. But yeah. I do remember that whole area feeling like really secluded. Like you probably won't see a whole lot of other people back there. Awesome. Mm-hmm. So also in Nara Park, is Wakakusa Yama. Also known as Mount Wakakusa. So this is, uh, I think, a little northeast from the shrine, walking deeper into the park. There's a whole bunch of walking paths, and you can take some that lead up to the top of this mountain and give you a really nice view of the area. Now, I got to say, Japanese mountains, a lot of times they don't really feel like mountains. Like this looks to me like more of a big hill. You know what I mean? Yeah. What What's the cutoff between a mountain and a hill? Like there's places in Minnesota called mountains that are like 2,000 feet high. And it's like, is that a mountain? Eh, maybe. I don't know. I mean, I guess the thing that makes this really feel like a hill to me is that it's so grassy. Like when I think mountain, I think like, oh, rocky, you know, you're climbing up these boulders and stuff. But this one, is, it almost looks like just a giant grassy lawn on a hill it'd be really big for a hill though yeah and small for a mountain but really great hiking trails through these old forests so for a small fee you can walk to the top of the quote-unquote mountain except in winter but i actually have the numbers here it's about 350 meters tall which is around 1150 feet but it it only takes like 45 minutes to get to the top I mean, what kind of mountain only takes 45 minutes to climb? Come on. Yeah, a very small one. But the view from the top is pretty cool. Like, you get a view of the whole city. So you might wonder, like, how do they keep it grassy? You know, you would think that it would get overgrown with all sorts of stuff, right? Is it the deer? Are the deer eating everything? I thought of that. I don't think there are, like, enough deer eating the grass to really keep it at bay like that. Yeah. I mean, it looked, from the pictures, it looks like a part of the mountain is actually mowed. Okay. But also, every winter, 
on the fourth Saturday in January, they burn the slopes of the mountain. There's a festival called Wakakusa Yamayaki. Okay. Yeah. Cool. It does look cool. They light off some fireworks, and then they just set the mountain on fire. Nice. Yeah. That'd be a cool sight. Explosions and fire. What more could you want? (laughs) Right. So it's not entirely clear why they started doing this. The origins of this festival are lost to the sands of time, you could say. But yeah, it sounds really cool. I want to see that. The old, we don't know why we're doing this, we just do it. People did it last year, so we're doing it this year. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Paul, do you have anything about Shinyakushiji? Yeah. So this is actually just south of Nara Park. Yeah, kind of like straight south of Kasuga Taisha a little bit, but t- I think technically it's outside of the park, right? Yeah, it's like in yeah. the edge of the city. Kinda. Yeah, but not far away. You can walk there. Yeah. It's another temple that was founded in the Nara period by an empress for her ailing husband emperor. It's dedicated to Yakushi Buddha, who is the patron of medicine. Makes sense. That does make perfect sense. And I thought this was kind of funny. The name Shin Yakushiji means new Yakushi temple because there was already a Yakushi temple. Yeah. Yeah, well, this is the new one. It's 1,300 years old, and it's the new one. Right. So it doesn't look like a huge temple. There's actually only one building left, but that building houses 12 life-size statues of guardian deities surrounding another statue of that Yakushi Buddha. I've heard that these statues are so impressive that if you take your time to admire them with there being 13 statues, you could spend a long time here really looking at each one and noticing the details. I bet. It looks like there are some walking paths around there that look really pretty too. Like they have some water features and stone bridges and that kind of stuff. It looked nice. Yeah, nice relaxing area. Yep. So Nara being such an ancient place with all these temples and shrines... There's a lot of really cool matsuri or festivals that are happening. So we've been talking a lot, so I'll I'll try to make this really brief. But a couple of that caught my eye are the Heijo Tempio Summer Festival, which is on the former site of the Imperial Palace there. And this is a Tanabata festival. So the holiday where the Japanese celebrate the two legendary lovers who transformed into stars and only cross each other's path once a year. And it seems huge. There's costumes, parades, fireworks, light shows. So that seemed really cool. I still haven't been to a Tanabata festival, but that sounds really fun. Okay. It's on the last weekend in August. So you got to be there at the right time. There's also the Himuro Shirayuki Shaved Ice Festival. So there's this... uh, A whole festival for shaved ice? Yeah. There's a shrine just outside of Nara Park that's dedicated to... The god of shaved ice? <laughs> um, almost. The god of sweet syrup. It's the god of ice. So I guess <laughs> okay. he'd be the god of shaved ice too. So shaved ice vendors from across Japan come here and show off their shaved ice. That's cool. Actually. Usually in the first weekend of May every year. Is it warm enough in May for that? You say first week of May? Yeah. Wouldn't it be kind of chilly still? Maybe that's just after the rainy season. 
I know it gets hot and muggy in Japan in the summer. Yeah. So shaved ice would be nice. I don't know. I haven't been to Japan in May. Maybe it's already starting to get warm. Apparently, they've been selling ice at the shrine since all the way back to the Edo period. Nice. And the last one is probably the biggest. Omizutori, which is held in Todaiji. And just to sum it up quickly, it's this long festival over multiple days where at sundown, they go on top of this building that kind of has a platform so you can stand under it. And the priests light these bundles on fire and they wave them over the crowd and all the like ashes that come down are supposed to give you good luck. I saw a video of that. That does look really cool. So yeah, it looks really cool. And it there's different days and some days it's bigger, some days it's smaller. It looks awesome. I remember walking up on that like platform too where they do that. You can kind of get some cool views of the the buildings down below from there too. Nice. And that is March 1st through March 14th every year. So lots of different days you can hit that up. Cool. So hopefully that gives you an idea of the kinds of things you can see and do in NARA. So let's talk about how to get to and around NARA if you are inspired to visit. Take a train. Yeah, NARA is very easily accessible by train. Didn't we already say if you're staying in Kyoto or Osaka, it's less than an hour to get to NARA. Yeah. And you totally should. Yeah. And all of these places we mentioned are probably within 10 or 20 minutes of a train station, except maybe the stuff that's really deep into Nara Park. Yeah. I mean, if you walked straight back there, it doesn't take that yeah. long. Yeah. yeah. Easy to get around. Uh, so within the city, like everything on the east side is very walkable. I would recommend you show up at either Nara Station or Kintetsu Nara Station, which are basically like just west of the park. And then you can spend all day walking around, all that cool stuff over there. But if you want to get out to those things on the west side that we talked about first, Heijo Palace and those, those temples out there, you're probably going to want to take a bus or a train to get out there. But there are enough buses and trains that it's not hard. Like, it's a pretty straight line to get out there on a train anyway. Yep. So... I promised some dollar amounts earlier, right? You did. So say we're going around and we're, we're paying the entrance fees to all these shrines and museums and everything. All the ones we talk about, going by the numbers I saw online, which aren't necessarily 100% accurate, but give a good idea. It's 10,700 yen you're going to be paying for all these entrance fees, which actually with today's exchange rate, only totals $78.71. That's for a single adult, right? Yes, for one person, one adult going to all these places. Kids are probably going to be cheaper, I would guess. Yes, I would imagine so. Which actually wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. So you're talking like every single place that we listed? Yeah. Yeah, that's not bad. I'm still stuck in the past because the exchange rate I looked up today is $1 is hundred, about 136 yen. I'm still stuck in the past where I'm still thinking about 100 yen per dollar. Yeah. So I'm looking at 10,700. I'm like, oh, that's 100 bucks, but really it's less than 80. Yeah. So exchange rates working in our favor right oh, now. Man. Yeah. So I've been... it does add up a little bit, but that's like one nice meal at a fancy restaurant, you know? So it's probably not going to kill your travel budget. Yeah. That's not crazy at all. 
And it goes to support all these ancient places and keep them able to restore their buildings and stay around. And so I like that. This is way more places than you could even possibly visit in a single day anyway. So like that's probably going to be split between two or three days. Yeah, putting this episode together, I was thinking probably at least two full days of running around town to see all this stuff. Yeah, if you wanted to see absolutely everything, it'll take up some time. And I mean, you can spend so much time just hanging out with the deer. And like, once you get rid of your crackers, just sit around and watch other people get harassed by the deer. It's kind of hilarious. Yeah, yeah. You can see baby deer. You can see maybe some deer fighting each other. It's, it's really cool. Well, that's all I got. I got one last thing, Jason. What's that? So I think Nara is so cool that it's worth spending some time in Nara rather than just taking a day trip. So I've actually got a couple of day trips you could take from Nara. So if you wanted to stay for a while, I'll make it really brief. So, you know, I'm a history nerd. I do know that. So there's a city called Asuka, which is even older history than Nara. I think it came up once or twice. We mentioned that, yeah. So they've got the oldest Buddhist temple in Japan there, and they've got a really cool-looking archaeology museum, and there's some really old, huge stone tombs there that you can visit. One of them has a bunch of paintings in it. You can't go in it, but they recreated it nearby, and they've got gold leaf covering the ceiling that has all the constellations and the stars and a bunch of paintings that were in there too. So I would love to see that myself. And the most famous spot in Japan for cherry blossoms is Yoshino, which is also in Nara Prefecture. Isn't there like a cultivar of the cherry tree named after that? Yoshino something something? Perhaps. But it's this little town that's got over 30,000 cherry trees planted on the slopes of the mountains surrounding it with just a whole bunch of different walking paths. So if you're in the right time, that's the place to go. Cool. All right, well, maybe we leave it there for today, Jason. We've talked about Nara for quite a while, I think. I think you're right. Well, if you want to see some pictures of a bunch of this stuff that we talked about, I'll be posting a lot on Instagram. We are at SJP Podcast, and I do the Instagram stuff. But if you want to talk to Paul, where can you do that? Twitter. At SJP Podcast. How's that going? That's still pretty new. Yeah. We haven't been releasing episodes, so I don't have a ton to talk about, but it's going. All right. But yeah, join us there. I'll be posting a ton of pictures and things from Japan. Sweet. Let me also say welcome to all of our new listeners because, I don't know, I've just been looking at the numbers and like since Japan opened up, it seems like a lot more people are finding the podcast, which is great to see. Uh, I'd also encourage anyone to go leave a review. That would be really helpful to help more people find the podcast that are maybe interested in visiting Japan. Yeah, that would be fantastic. We don't have a ton of reviews, but reviews really help people give an idea of what they're getting into. So uh, would very much appreciate it if any of you would take the time to do that for us. Faux show. Paul, what is coming up next time? Uh, I'm so excited. The next episode is going to be our trip recap from our upcoming vacation to Japan. Oh my goodness. We're going to have a lot to talk about, I imagine. Yeah. 
it feels a little bit self-indulgent to just like talk about our trip for a long time. But hopefully we can give you an idea of like what kind of itinerary you might want to put together on your trip. Like this is the kind of trip you could do in Japan if you want to. Yeah. I imagine that's one of the best takeaways from those episodes of this is what you can squeeze in if you go visit these places. Yeah. Well, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.